Hi everyone, this is Corina. Welcome to The Human Show, proudly presented and supported by worldpodcast.com. Here we explore the relationships between people, technology and business. Join us on this journey where we interview anthropologists, other researchers and industry people from all over the world, from India to Kenya, US, Europe, to right back here in New Zealand. Hi friends, in today's episode we are talking to Mary L. Gray, anthropologist and senior principal researcher at Microsoft Research. Her impressive career path at the intersection of business and academia shows that it is possible to develop both as a scholar and as a practitioner of anthropology. We asked Mary to go back in time to when she discovered her anthropological side and share how it manifested itself. She speaks to the key role curiosity has played and continues to play in her life and career. We ask her several questions. How much freedom to contest, reflect and choose does a researcher have when working in the Microsoft Research team? What does it take for a company to create knowledge and when should that knowledge be public or private? At the end, Mary reflects on her own positionality and means to continuously recenter and the special place that scholarly communities have in this process. We hope you enjoy it. Hi friends, we are here today with Mary Gray, um, Senior Principal Researcher at Microsoft and also an anthropologist, correct? Correct. Nah, I'm, I'm very excited to finally make this happen. Thank, um, you, for, thank you for your <laughs> persistence. She will persist. Yes, I will persist. This, this is what you do in the podcast world. That's right. <laughs> uh, Mary, before we dive into anything else, I'd like I'd love if you can tell me and our listeners a little bit about your mentoring path with research and anthropology and yeah, where did it all start for you? It's, it's so odd to imagine that I'm at Microsoft Research because I can honestly say it's the, it's probably the last place I would have imagined myself. Um, considering as a kid, my first computer was actually an Apple, was a Macintosh, that great toaster box Apple. Um, but that's beside the point. I mean, I, I think because I grew up in a small town, um, in a rural part of California, the Central Valley, which is basically a large farm, um, that uh, there weren't a ton of different walks of life in front of me. And um, the most obvious ones were the kinds of jobs my mom had and, and her friends in nursing and caring for other people, teachers. And um, just early on, I was very curious about what the rest of the world looked like. I, I'm not really sure what sparked that interest, but when I ended up going to college, the, the classes that really um, sheltered me from the storm of being in a new place and being surrounded by more people than I'd ever been in, around in my in my life. Um, it was the anthropology courses. Let me ask you a little bit of a weird question, maybe. When, when did you realize that you were good at, like, watching people? Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, pretty early on. I mean, <laughs> I, very early on. I think it's a, it's a disposition Right, of, of yeah. anthropologists, that yeah. so we we share this uh, this um, curiosity with what other people are doing, and a certain kind of stealth, um, <laughs> a, a, a quiet approach to asking people questions. I, I have a very clear memory of in high school being encouraged to do science fair, and the questions I was most curious about had to do with people's use of um, of. Uh, uh, drugs. And I was just fascinated by what draws somebody into a world where they also seem so out of control and comforted at the same time. And I remember um, spending time at an emergency room in, in downtown Fresno, which was going into the big city for, for where I grew up. And just being so um, curious and um, in many ways concerned, but um, also wanting to understand how people were patching together their lives from the nurses who were taking care of the people who came into the emergency rooms to the families who gathered around these, these folks who are clearly struggling. And mm. yeah, just a, a quiet curiosity has always um, been a part of my, my, um, the back of my mind, I suppose. Yeah. And, and was that kind of mirrored back to you from the outside, like saying like that, that, that curiosity uh, was also seen by people as an asset or um, I d 
don't know. I mean, I know I had teachers who who uh, who clued in very early that that perhaps a good um, focus for me, <laughs> rather than <laughs> like kind of being busy in the background, was um, to set me to the task of. Uh, being the person who asked people questions, coming into being the person who was matched with new students. Um, for the most part, I, I think that there was an appreciation for that kind of quiet, um, mm. observational, um, habit. But, um, no, I think in many ways I, I would, um, blend into the woodwork. And yeah. that was, uh, it was, it was part of being able to blend into any setting too. Yeah. That, that, that's also something very, uh, recognizable for an anthropologist, right? Mm-hmm. I, I remember myself when I was a child that my family got tuned pretty early on this ability that I had of, of kind of observing, and they would ask me questions about each other. Oh yes, like absolutely. What do, you, what do you think about this, Corina? What do you think about? And then, and then you know, you you you, you they kind of got information that they. <laughs> They realized early on that I was pretty perceptive in like interpersonal dynamics. I always joked I was kind of the keeper of secrets. Yeah. And and really, you know, we're both these, uh, there's a certain gossip mongering (laughs) that comes with being an anthropologist, but it's mostly having people tell us really intimate details about what's going on for them. And I I do feel like that was a role I played. Uh, People would kind of share um, things that, that were going on for them. A lot of times, I think part of it is also mirroring back to people, mm-hmm. not necessarily telling them about what others have said so much as helping them hear what they're asking. Yeah, and, and suspension of, of judgment, right? Like, like yes. this, this kind of like anything works. I, I remember I'm, I'm going to finish with my own recollections here after this no, one. No, but I love it. I, I grew up in, in communist Eastern Europe, Romania, where we had the religion school very early on, and it was really mandatory, and you, you should not have questioned it. You just had to recite back little stories from the Bible. Mm-hmm. And I remember standing up in class and kind of uh, saying, uh, but in, in, in simpler words, that I, I thought God was actually quite sexist and patriarchal. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so I will share with you that I went to this small parochial school um, uh, through my elementary school teaching. And it, the, the pre, the, it was run by nuns from Madrid. They were incredibly strict and um, very demanding. And when I started probably around fourth grade or so asking these questions about, well, why can't, why can't girls be priests too? Yeah. And we had a, we had a pastor, we had a priest who did let me serve as an altar girl. I was one of the, I was actually the only girl who had wanted to, to do this. And he became my direct mentor, mostly so these nuns wouldn't have to put up with my really obnoxious questioning of things like, why would we imagine animals don't have souls? It seems yeah. like they would, right? So he would, he, he would literally spend hours with me kind of fielding all my questions that were, um, too annoying, too, um, yeah, too frustrating for the nuns. Yeah. I, I'm curious if that dynamic plays out into your corporate experience or academic experience <laughs> as an anthropologist, too. Okay, I, 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 I see myself like the same kind of attitude that I had as a child. It, it's kind of some of it. I see it coming back in the in the way I. I uh, act as an anthropologist in the boardroom or with projects or, but, but I want to, I want to just, just, uh, take back to where we stopped because you were talking about uh, discovering anthropology in school, right? Was there, was there a particular theme that kind of you got attracted towards or was it anthropology as a, as a, as a discipline in itself? I think it was just having every single course taking up some other facet of the, the, um, incredible range of ways that people organize their lives and just the cultural force of ritual and expectation and seeing it as um, strong as any, you know, anything we might attribute to biology. But what really struck me was literally every single class I took, it was like, and here's another way in which this can manifest. And I felt like that um, I don't, I didn't have the words at the time, but I felt like it taught me just the possibilities are endless. That we constantly get to reimagine and reconstitute what it means to be in relationship to ourselves in the world. Uh, there wasn't a single class that I took that didn't reinforce that 
that perspective that, gosh, this is all just um, available to us as, um, mm. you know, different ways of being in the world. Yeah, I, I also remember like what, what I found interesting about anthropology, the way I studied it, is that it was it was after constructivism, so it comes with a certain kind of way in which it's almost as if it's anti-structure, like this, yeah. this whole concept of agency and power and the many, many ways in which we can fight against something or rebalance, recalibrate, mm-hmm. uh, especially coming from, from such a prescriptive, rigid uh, government space that I grew up in. It was it was a revelation. So I, I wonder, have you also kind of like looked at it in that way, like, you know, like agency and structure and systems and how you can subvert them, <laughs> change yeah. them? No, that's so, that's such a, that's an interesting point because I do think I came in right as anthropology was coming to grips, not just coming to grips with a a kind of post-structural analysis Mm -hmm. of the world. I was also taught a very four field kind of moving into the fifth fields of anthropology. So it was also, um, in the U.S. context, quite interdisciplinary in the Mm -hmm. expectation that you're learning um, history, you're learning linguistics, um, you're learning um, uh, about um, biology, about um, about uh, the physical world, and that all of those are um, uh, all of them contribute, but do not define the shape of humanity. So I feel like that that lesson, which did come at a moment, you know, by the 90s, that was really reckoning with political forces with a way of thinking about about power that was much more complicated than individuals make choices i mean it was mm-hmm. that was that was never the theoretical framework that that um was put in front of me and at the same time it was in tension with i was also um one of the first uh cohorts of a new major on campus the native american studies major at UC Davis, and it was right in the middle of a U.S. Um, uh, law around repatriation, around re- returning um, indigenous materials to different communities. So it was a really interesting um, point of tension between anthropology reckoning with its past, mm-hmm. theories that absolutely suggested that um, there's nothing definitive or structured about our relationships, that they're constantly a power negotiation, and then watching that power negotiation play out around knowledge that anthropology felt like it should really hold on to all of these materials because it knew best and it could unlock the the secrets of science. And so it, you know, it, the discipline itself was really coming to grips with its own contradictions, its own tyranny in a lot of ways. Um, hmm. And to be in the thick of that negotiation with another, you know, discipline that was budding that also had its, um, its theories of power was, was really formative for me. Like it made everything about anthropology deeply political. Yeah. Was it something that was more of a reality of that particular place where you studied anthropology or would you say it's, it's also representative of, of, of the way anthropology shaped itself in the U.S. at the time that you studied it? I mean, I actually feel they're kind of um, co-constructing in the sense that it's a moment in, in history for anthropology in the U.S. And I feel like it does have all those particularities because it's so... Um, specific to, you know, this, um, national context that built up anthropology mm-hmm. in some ways as a particular kind of science. Um, and then the discipline itself had to unravel and really expose, um, yeah. how, you know, how deeply, um, oppressive that approach um, the kind of uh, salvage archaeology that thought, well, everything is, you know, we're destroying everything, so we should keep a few um, curios on the you know, shelf. And it couldn't quite acknowledge how much it was part of that destruction. But at the same time, I think, you know, as you noted, there's also, for me, just a political moment um, that is this opportunity to say, oh, there's an application of this framework and this methodology that can be used for interrogating what, what do we take for granted? Like that is really what it put in front of me, which fit so, um, so neatly with what 
I feel, uh, you know, I came up with, which, yeah. which was, was that curiosity that like, yeah. oh, I, I get to question it all. And that's a good thing. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I feel what I find very fascinating about the way you deconstruct the academic space, Mary, is that it, it gives me personally a lot of hope. Mm-hmm. Um, because the way I've experienced the academic hope uh, space is always this kind of tension of of elitism and 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 kind of embracing, particularly from from more like the older generation scholars, yeah. it's kind of embracing of this if this and clinging on to that legacy rather than being being able to confront it, mm-hmm. and a lot of elitism and a lot of like a rigidity towards uh, multidisciplinarity, and and I think. That within myself sits in a, a strong contrast to what I love about the academic space, which is just sitting with complex things, love for knowledge and knowledge creation and um, constant pursuit of objectivity and more fundamental inquiries. Yeah. So when you speak about it, it, it just gives me personally so much hope, you know, like you speak to the academic space with this kind of, yeah. I think there's a deep irony that uh, for where I sit now for computer science and engineering mm-hmm. to realize how much it um, needs a um, a social cultural framework mm-hmm. that it, it, it it's it recognizes even as it searches for the terms, but it recognizes that it doesn't know how to analyze um, the social, the cultural, to be able to move forward with its projects. So we've never, you know, this cultural, the social cultural analysis has never been more um, necessary. And at the same time, again, I, I, I do believe there's so much about the, the force of time and reckoning with, you know, the, um, the collision of these, these different tensions, expectations mm-hmm. in the academy by the 80s like the 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 um realities in the United States of there no longer being an investment in public education mm-hmm. and the the move which was coming from many different angles of of privatizing the um role of higher education in a in a US context again meant that disciplines like Anthropology, sociology, critical studies of any kind and humanities more broadly were left in this position of having to defend their value. Mm. And it's so, um, again, so deeply ironic and somewhat tragic that the institutional, the structure, the institutional forces of mm. higher education led to a deepening of that protection of there's something special about this perspective that didn't lend itself to saying there's something applicable. Yeah. There's something vital about mm. this perspective. And I think vital and special are quite different. I think the defensiveness that I read in that elitism, you know, I mean, not to get too psychoanalytic, it kind of <laughs> registers as a deep insecurity about the, um, the potential to have disciplines evolve and develop um, that conservative move that says this is how we've always done it and this is how we should be means that it, it walls itself off. Mm-hmm. And I, I, you know, I, I find what's hopeful about anthropology and kind of critical humanistic studies more broadly is that they do often resonate as these instruments for, uh, reflection. Mm-hmm. Like what they do best is mm-hmm provoke reflection to say, you know, what if it were otherwise? Um, what is it we assume in this moment? So it's, you know, I'm glad you're hearing that hopefulness because I believe that the um, what makes this approach so vital is its yeah. capacity to question. Yeah, yeah. And it's just so, not given room to do that in the university. Yeah, it's not. yeah. So let, let's talk a little bit about how you've done it in in, in this kind of like, being part of these two worlds, right? The yeah. uh, the academic space and also the trying to uh, apply it in Microsoft. Um, in, in Microsoft, and you know, I also want to acknowledge how privileged the space that Microsoft has, and in 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 how they treat. Sorry, I say they like in how the company treats the whole space of research and this type of yeah. explorative deep research and the freedoms that you have to act within that space. So mm-hmm. I'm very curious if you can speak a little bit to that. Yeah, it's I mean, it's absolutely a luxury of a well endowed institution to set 
um, thinkers out, you know, send them out to where they believe they should be and, and say, you know, what questions are important to you? Go ask them. And, you know, Microsoft research has now become so exceptional, but its history is, it's, it is so rooted in an approach to building a basic science, building computer science. And so very early on, the institution of Microsoft research, which has been around 25 years, saw its mission as building out computer science and engineering mm-hmm. in this fundamental way. So it it's soaked with this sense of purpose that is, uh, what I find really interesting is that it is um, a sense that theory and application need not be intention. They might not happen at the same time. They absolutely don't need to drive each other, but they can, they can coalesce. They can come together as it, as it seems, um, as it, as it, as it, as it arises, as scholars kind of bring forward ways of connecting theory and application. So it, it has this long, um, history, but it also has this long game it's playing that mm-hmm. there's no benefit to thinking what's the short term application of a theory. It's, it's invested in imagining, mostly because it's investigating physical worlds, right? That there's something inherently valuable about deeply understanding a physical world and continuing to dive into the depth of the complexity of a physical world. Well, it really has only been about a decade since computer science and engineering has realized that it is constantly um, interacting with social worlds. And it started out with this idea that, well, we could map physical worlds and social worlds in similar ways. You know, we can think about graph theory as a way of mapping space. Well, how does that connect or reflect social networks? Like, so those, those kind of basic questions were um, starting to be brought into Microsoft research as foundational questions for computer science and engineering. And then Thankfully, there were enough people internally who said, oh, there's something that's going on here that's much more layered and it has to do with society and we're not trained to think about society. Mm. And they started bringing in researchers like myself, Dana Boyd, Nancy Bain, Tartan Gillespie, Kate Crawford, um, as well as an amazing set of scholars who do human-computer interaction which is a part of computer science, but with this much more open-ended approach. Yeah. I, I wonder, what does it take for a company to have that open-ended approach to knowledge knowledge creation? I mean, it has to have capital. You know, the yeah. sad reality is that um, it is playing the role of a university. Yeah. And the only reason it's playing that role, there are two reasons. It needs the knowledge that, scholars build and that knowledge is not being provided by public universities. And there's arguably a third reason that needs to be called out, which is at least right now, corporate interests are somewhat protective of what they might learn. And so they don't have an orientation that fully embraces, let it all be public. Um, so, you know, part of it is wanting to be able to capitalize quite literally on what there is to learn and be the first to know it. And genuinely, from from where I sit, there's a sense that that will always be part of a circulation with public knowledge because that's been true for science, for, for computer science and engineering. That was mm-hmm. that they literally picked up the mantle of Bell Labs. There was no real division between public science and private enterprise for things like um, telephony and um, really quite a number of basic um, uh, areas of research in um, cryptography, uh, for example. But I think it's noteworthy to say those are places where private and public enterprise um, had uh, common cause. In some cases, it was yeah. um, defense initiatives. Yeah. Um, in other cases, you know, uh, public what was imagined to be public sector investment. Hmm. How how do you define a, a piece of knowledge that you discover as being public or private, or, or hmm. is is there is there any kind of um, processes that kind of govern that? So the nice thing, or fascinating, actually, that's such a great question, Karina, because I think what's interesting is they had a model for what that looks like for code. Mm-hmm. If you're developing software, 
and you're developing something that's going to contribute to a system and it's a fairly closed system, you can see who's written which line of code. And so there's much clearer rules around the intellectual property rights of both the developer and the company that is funding that development. It's much less clear, thankfully, for the kind of intellectual growth. I don't really like property as a way of framing this, learning from mm-hmm. um, social interactions and learning from um, the, the kinds of materials we generate through dialogue in ethnographic research. So there's, there's thankfully no clear um, boundaries on any of the research that I do, mostly because I'm already in dialogue with someone. There's no way to define that as um, uh, trade secrets. Mm. So it's it's a it's a fascinating story of most of the history of intellectual property and rights to um, things don't easily lend themselves to private extraction and and capture when we're talking about how do we build technologies that interact with society because society is informing us. So as we're building out technologies, there's there's just no easy way to claim, although some might try, yeah. easy way to claim a, a sharp division between um, society and private enterprise at yeah. that moment. So you would say that, for example, what happened with Google um, could not happen in this case, right? Like like yeah. the, the the way Google was built, like it, it's very interesting. Like I, I do not know much about the history of how. How Google as a technology, like the search technology was built, um, and, and how it ended up becoming something that is so obviously for me, uh, but maybe I'm a little bit, uh, I'm not advanced in this topic, but something that so obviously for me should be a public, uh, infrastructure service, uh, became, uh, privatized. I mean, I think the difficulty, again, particularly in a U.S. context for technology and innovation is that we have had such a, um, a uh, unraveling and, an, you know, such atrophy mm-hmm. of our uh, ability to imagine ways of arranging relationships that are deeply public and private. Yeah. Uh, and or could be deeply public. So, I mean, to your point, thinking of a search engine as a utility, a public utility, mm-hmm. or thinking for me about media yeah. Um, and anything that's, you know, that's coursing through social media as necessary to democracy. Mm. Yeah. You have to be able to have information that can be contested and sourced to be able to have a robust democracy. That's kind of a, that's an argument within media studies, for example. That, those arguments about the social function of technologies have been, um, happening quite removed from the technology companies that can build something, have it out in the world and seen mm. as a consumable, that's beyond regulation. Like we we did not have regulation in place to quickly identify, as you just said, something like a search engine as a public utility. Yeah. And how is that happening now, Mary? Like who builds mm. this understanding for the regulators themselves? Because it does feel like so much of this maybe this this role that was sitting inside the academic space itself, right? Yeah. I and think that well, it's been sitting inside the academic space, but no, honestly, I don't mm. think the academic space has trained us to be able to be um, the uh, interlocutors that we need, the translators that mm. we need. Yeah. So, you know, whether it's law and policy, um, government officials, or social scientists critiquing technologies, for for me at least, it's quite clear that people aren't even starting with some basic understandings and definitions of how do things work to be able to ask the right questions. So we're talking past each other right now. There's such a lack of um, literacy and fluency um, either on the social side that needs to understand technologies to ask the right questions or on the technological side to understand the societal impact yeah, of what yeah. it is they build like the, the that we're talking past each other right now and and where would for you the locus of that translation sit with i would love to have it sit both with the um, computer scientists and engineers trained to think about their social obligations and their societal 
responsibilities mm-hmm. because right now that's not they're not taught they're taught to understand their responsibilities around privacy and security that's actually quite encoded in how they approach their problems but they've not been taught how to imagine the um, societal role they will play as builders of technologies that are effectively conduits for social relationships they're not building a thing yeah right? they're building a way in which people connect and that's um the full gravity of that has not been taught nor absorbed so that's one piece of it i think there's just a deep need for training um certainly among our peers in the social sciences there is a need for training so that there is a more clarity a, a crisp sense of the limits of what technologies can do because to talk about a kind of fanciful Lovecraft world <laughs> um, <laughs> means we're not really asking um, important questions. Uh, we're, we're jumping to things we want to preclude that are so phantasmic that we don't focus on the mundane things. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we could bring ourselves to the more, you know, the, the bread and butter questions we need to ask and we don't know what those are yet. And, Genuinely, we need a regulatory um, apparatus that gets um, civil society back in the game. Like our, our, our lawmaker, you know, it's very difficult right now, particularly in the U.S., to talk about um, our, our representatives <laughs> being able to do this very hard work, but to represent the public's interest. Mm-hmm. is the critical role of a democratic nation state. <laughs> like that's what they're supposed to be doing. That's why we have an electoral system. So, you know, in a representative democracy, the piece we need most are representatives who will um, first and foremost prioritize the public interest when we're talking about mm-hmm. technologies that aren't just consumable goods. Yeah. I- I'm very curious how do you how do you embody that yourself in in or what what do you embody out of that in in yourself in in your job because I, I find that very difficult also within myself I'm an anthropologist working in the aviation sector with, yeah. with, with many <laughs> many many challenges and and uh, often having to assume different positionalities also for myself and within myself yeah. I, I I work with students I, I I interact with the academic space so so much of it's like how how do you position yourself you know as a kind of a of a piece of this mechanism yeah i mean i the the role i um have have sought to play is to be both that translator but also a peacekeeper mm. and a peacemaker to say they you know the the institutions are um bloodless They don't care. We need to stop looking for technology to care. That's not, it's a thing. But to populate technology companies, to populate um, governments and local governments, particularly that procure uh, mm. incredibly um, uh, harmful technologies, if not, if not fully understood, like in, used for criminal justice, for example. Mm. Those are really local level dis- decisions that have to do with buying something um, that is being sold on the pretense that it's neutral. Hmm. And so to me, the, the role I play is to remind everyone there's nothing neutral about any technology. It's, it's set into a world in which there are so many assumptions about what it should and shouldn't do built into it that will necessarily break as soon as as soon as it's deployed outside of this this imagined world it was built for like that it needs to contend with it will not work as assumed it was yeah. supposed to work but just as importantly that it's going to land in a world that needs constant um you know we need vigilance we need to constantly be monitoring what mm. is uh, on what is um uh the the downstream effect of whatever is put in motion and build in stop gaps like build in places where we're yeah. looking at how is it doing <laughs> what's it doing yeah who's benefiting who is yeah. who is put at further risk because of what's happening like to build that in yeah. so that we're not 
finding ourselves years later saying, oh, my gosh, there's scores of people this has been ignoring. Yeah, I, I, I want to take it back to, to you as a person, you know, and, and I, I'm, I'm curious, how did you end up, uh, what helped you inhabit that position? Because I'm also like, I don't think it's an easy thing to do. In a, in a business environment to play that role. And I, I, I also speak to a lot of students. I remember myself at the beginning of my career, like it took a hard time to find my voice and to feel that I could act like that. And, and you know, sometimes it's also difficult. Like I, I feel I need something to make me inhabit that space, to make me yeah. act from that space of bravery, you know, from that girl that was eight and stood up in the communism class and said, God is sexist. <laughs> and you are teaching us sexist things. Yeah. <laughs> but but yeah. There, 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 there's something that happens to you that, that enables that fire, right? So yeah. um, I'm yeah. curious, how did it work for you? Um, part of it was staying connected to scholarly networks that expect no less. <laughs> okay. You know, I, I mean, that does mm. help quite a bit. I, it's, it's difficult because it's uncomfortable, and I often feel a bit embarrassed that I am that person who is constantly compromising is accepting the power differential in which I can, I am absolutely privileged to be in an environment where I can critique the, um, the, the kind of algorithmic cruelty, as we talk mm-hmm. about in our book, that is wrought when technologists build things without, um, in our case, in our research, you know, without workers in mind, for example. And, to be the one standing up and saying that also means to be ignored or to be dismissed or quite literally to be um, nodded at. And then the dude next to me um, offers his opinion and that becomes like the, you know, the, the coin of the realm. So it's, it's sitting in the discomfort of, knowing that whatever I might propose as a way of doing otherwise as the possibility um, could easily be dismissed for myriad reasons, not the least of which because mm-hmm. it will hurt a bottom line. Um, and what I've done, practically speaking, is literally just dig in as the teacher um, that I really enjoy being and taking each moment I have a chance to do so to, to turn it into um a chance to learn, like, what's the perspective somebody's bringing uh, to a set of questions that I feel like there there's more they could be asking mm. about, say, um, you know, the the differential impact of of what they're building. Yeah. Uh, that 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 you know, really taking that moment to ask somebody. So, what is it you're assuming? And do you know if if you know, how do you know that's the right question? And to say that not rhetorically or with steam, but literally to investigate that, like that's, that is something I do every day. Here. Yeah. And, and did you always have that from the beginning? Because I also want to acknowledge we have many listeners and, and people that are kind of like at the beginning of that transition, you know, like uh, with anthropologists, either as a freelancer uh, looking for contracts in quite a precarious mm. environment or mm. even uh, the first job inside a company from a very low position of research. And it, it kind of it can be, I think, quite difficult to explore that uh, when you are in that context. So how mm. is it for you? Like, how, how did you or, or if you would have any advice for them, how they can do that in a way that um, works? Yeah. I mean, I think that I want to be very honest and somewhat, you know, it saddens me to say the very particular arrangement of Microsoft Research means that when they recruit researchers here, we're already um, established in our careers mm-hmm. and we're brought here. Um, to, in most cases, we already have tenure somewhere else. And so we're brought in to set an agenda. We're asked mm-hmm. What do you think are the important questions? So we are given some room for a short period of time with a particular audience yeah. <laughs> internally to say, this is what I think we should be asking. Mm. Um, at the minimum, we're all given uh, literally academic freedom to say, just go ask what you would have been asking if you were at university. And that said, what I think my advice to anyone who might be entering um, an alt academic career within technology companies or other settings where they want to bring this anthropological approach to the pragmatics of, of a company trying to solve a particular problem is that 
you to hold on to your awareness that the value of what your training brings is calling the question is calling out the formulation of the question to say, you know, you're asking this question this way. Let's take a step back. I want to understand why this feels like the important question to you. Nine times out of ten, companies formulate questions and they've never actually asked the communities they have in mind um, when they're trying to build a solution. Mm-hmm. Or they just think something's cool and they want to try it out. Mm-hmm. So our training brings this incredibly sophisticated approach to finding out why is that your priority? Mm. Tell me what that means. That's something everyone trained day one can walk in and ask, and it is an invitation that most people will take up because they're excited about what they've come up with. It's Mm. the next step that's the hardest, is when you see somebody's asking a question building something based on that question, like what would people do with facial recognition? Yeah. (laughs) Where you literally, you know, the next, the next move is to be able to build trust so that someone will listen to you when you start asking, you know, I want to understand if maybe there are other questions we could be asking Mm. so that we become the, um, you know, what anthropology particularly is good at is, reformulating questions yeah. is drawing everybody's attention to the, the working assumptions that everybody's attached to so that we can reset and imagine other possibilities. So it, that day two is everything is about getting, building the relationship, building the trust so that people can see you're seeing things in the way the question is asked that could be rethought. And that's, that is an opportunity for everyone. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I'm sure you've had this experience. Usually everybody will say, like, we don't have time for that. It, this is the best thing about this moment right now is that it's so clear that rushing to build things does not work. Yeah. I have a harder question for you because I think this first one to sit in, in the spaces of inquiry, it, it, it's something that anthropologists are extremely good at and it's also the first opening with a company. The yeah. second will be once you find your answer, you know, like wh- what I often find working with technology is that the digger, the, the deeper you dig into the nature of the relationship and the rights that people build with this technological product, you end up at a space where the product itself is, is serving capitalism and transactionism and, yeah. and you let go of, of something that is fundamentally your own in order to serve this these other other types of commercial interests and yeah. the difficulty sits in can we as anthropologists or should we as anthropologists create spaces where we stimulate conversations around different solutions yes so with the yes. data that you find how can we conceptualize a more moral way of building social networks like facebook or yeah. a different yeah. way of looking at facial recognition and rights and you know, I, I, I'm amazed. I, I talk to this amazing computer scientist, and then when you sit in deeper conversations of morality, uh, rights, and ethics, they get one quite uncomfortable, and two, if we end up with a, in a space where we realize that there's some fundamental right there that is not being accounted for, they say, "Well, but isn't the government supposed to do that?" Right, right, right. So, no, I mean, <laughs> this is the hardest question because yeah. we haven't. I mean, I, again, I, I, I don't think anything is, um, there's no destiny here, but the fascinating irony of having this, um, discipline, computer science and engineering spin up and build so much strength and, um, have so much power and, and influence at the same time that we've, um, dismantled so much of our capacity to have regulation. Uh, and when I say regulation, I mean people's voices <laughs> as a priority um, in the mix. That at this point, to your point, that that a kind of capitalist extractive logic, mm-hmm. see and efficiency being the most um, important thing to achieve, and that going unquestioned has been most of the history of the development of this industry. Mm-hmm. Most of this industry has developed with this sense that the market or some some glitch will be the thing that course corrects is the shock that stops something really bad. Mm-hmm. Um, and to your you know to your 
point when you're talking with a really, really smart computer scientist or engineer who's never had any training mm. uh, and has no theory of power mm. and has a way of looking at the world that is um, more psychological than philosophical. Mm. That's the place where we can bring to the fore something that historicizes the way things are, mm. something that contextualizes the way things are. That can resonate, but we have to take so much, uh, we have to be incredibly patient. Yeah. I mean, I'm in, I'm impatient. I don't know about you. Yeah. Like, I don't have time to wait. No, but I wonder how do you do that? Because there are layers yeah. and layers of layers of, of power disbalances when you're in a room uh, and you're in a boardroom or with computer science discussing this. I mean, one, yeah. most of them are men. Most yes. of them are white. Uh, in most of the technology companies that I worked with, they are at a level higher above research. Yeah. So, um, so there's, there's so much inequality in those conversations uh, from the start. And I felt myself, one, as an anthropologist and as a woman, kind of mansplained uh, 10,000 times about yes. the technology. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. But with such surety, like gaslighted, you know, particularly yeah. at the beginning of my career, there's, there's this form of gaslighting that happens when yeah. you are a social scientist in the technology boardroom, when you are a woman, when you are an anthropologist that just finished a PhD or a master and it's starting off as a career in research. Yeah. So how do you... How do you try to kind of like fight against that or uh, still be yourself in that space? Yeah, I, I genuinely, I think what I mentioned earlier, and we make, make it really specific, the recommendation is to hold closely those people who know you best and know mm-hmm. better, who can pull you out of the gas, <laughs> you know. So I, you are absolutely right when, and again, you know, not to be psychoanalytic about it, but when people get defensive and start telling me how wrong I am, mm. it's a really good, you know, take it as a signal it's that security, there's something, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you're poking at something yeah. that is really important, that, mm. that clearly feels vulnerable mm. to the other person. And so how, you know, a, a a pretty radical, I've been accused of some radical compassion. <laughs> Mostly it's to get myself out of the room without undoing the kind of connection I might be able to have with that person. Mm. And I don't do this perfectly by any means. Any of my colleagues can tell you this. Um, to be able to get back to the scholarly communities, to the groups of mm. friends and colleagues who can remind me like, no, that's the right question. That's an important question to ask. I think the place we stumble because we are not trained to do otherwise is when somebody says, okay, well, what would you do? <laughs> we don't have an answer. Mm. We don't even have the beginning of an answer. And that's the place where, again, it's like we are trained to deeply understand a problem and, and to understand um, the expansive, interconnected um, ways in which groups and individuals and um, other kinds of arrangements of humanity are coming together. To be able to recognize that and know we are actually experts and could guide what to do otherwise. Like, we have yeah. to really hold on to that. Because I think, to the first point you made, there's something within anthropology unmarked rather than applied anthropology. But anthropology, the unmarked category <laughs> that gets away with saying all we have to do is see what's wrong. Yeah. Is that also maybe, but maybe I'm again psychoanalyzing anthropology here. Is that also touching on that old wound of the heritage? You know, the fact that, I mean, we've been telling like governments what to do, man, for a lot. 100%. (laughs) Not the right things to do, but you know. We overcorrected. I mean, I, I think that's the thing is like we, we recognized what in the 80s? like mm. late 70s, early 80s, what damage we had done by telling mm. governments and different groups what to do, yeah. um, how to see the world. And so that retreat that said, we're just going to um, remove ourselves from the equation was also not reckoning with we're still part of this world and we do have this contribution to make as a discipline um, that can look at the lay of the land and see the relationality, you know, the, the way in which it's um, not just some playing field, right? I'm full of metaphors today, but yeah. like that we, to be able to imagine we have something to contribute that isn't going to, to me, it's the hard part is we all want to fix it. We all want it, we want it to be better. 
and we um, in some ways need to accept the limits of what can uh, any one individual do. Like there's no one book that's going to solve a problem. It's contributing to reframe um, what we could be doing otherwise. That's our, that to me is the discipline's um, critical role mm. is that it can, it can reset an agenda and it can offer um, possibilities because it can see these other ways of orienting to problems and it can bring it to the table and say, how about this? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, uh, I'm very mindful that you, we have a few minutes and then your heart stop uh, begins. But I want to ask you one last question before we close this off, Mary. You were mentioning several times about, you know, the role of the academic space for you as a kind of like recentering into your own voice, into your own space. For, for those of our listeners that are kind of looking for these type of spaces, do you have some recommendations or do, do some groups or some form of communities that you know of, um, or, or any type of other advice that you would have on, you know, in what type of communities of others like like you or, or me um, uh, uh, have you seen as being useful? I really want us to take take over the um, our scholarly associations. So I, I really, I mean, I you know, it's funny because I think we have so much to gain and so much to give scholarly associations that you know, I'll take the American Anthropological Association mm-hmm. as an example. I mean, it was it has been such a critical home base for me because I can return to it and as you said, like center myself and remind myself of the value of this approach, um, the value to being disciplined in this way. There are other scholarly associations that I need to go to to be able to, to um receive the same sort of uh, course correction and affirmation and reminders. But the reason I think folks who don't necessarily see themselves publishing need to continue to be part of those scholarly conversations, it's because there's so much that we are doing in our day-to-day engagement that is intellectual work that we should be sharing at those meetings. And I think we... um that's another place we, we, we can be gaslit is to believe that unless it's published in a specific mm-hmm. journal in a particular genre uh, or way of communicating what we've learned, that it's not worthy. That's mm-hmm. not true. Yeah. So every one of those scholarly associations that has a, you know, has an interest group, has a section, go join it. Yeah. So talk, talk less through the language of journals only and, and find spaces of other, you know, community for free. Exactly. Oh. Mary, this is beautiful. Thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure. Thanks for the invitation to come talk with you. Thank you for listening, everyone. Follow us on our social media channels and look at the show notes for links to our speaker's work. Join us next time for more interesting conversations.